0: Welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Keith Kruger, uh, one of the hosts for the network. And today we're very fortunate to be joined by Christopher Carruthers, a scholar of comparative politics and most recently affiliated with the University of Pennsylvania's Center for the Study of Contemporary China as a postdoctoral fellow. Professor Carruthers' research focuses on authoritarianism and corruption control with a regional focus on East Asia. And has written for Foreign Affairs, Foreign Policy, Politics and Society, and the Journal of Democracy, among others. His first book, Corruption Control in Authoritarian Regimes, Lessons from East Asia, uh, Cambridge University Press, is about why some autocrats are motivated to curb corruption and why their efforts succeed or fail, and what the political consequences of such efforts are, uh, which is why this 2019 Harvard graduate in government, has joined us today. Professor Carruthers, Chris, thanks for taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you so much, Keith. I
2: really appreciate being invited.
0: Uh, This is your first book. Uh, congratulations. And and can you tell us you. Uh, about the genesis of the, the project? Uh, you mentioned uh, that this is a revised version of your PhD dissertation. Can you tell us some of the backstory there and how you came to focus on corruption and authoritarian regimes? Thank you. Yes. Um, when I was doing my PhD in, in government,
2: I uh, knew that I wanted to do something on China. I knew that I wanted to study a topic that uh, was very important in China, was very important to China's future as a polity, as a country. And at the time, looking around, I saw that the issue of corruption was critical, that Chinese officials and the Chinese state were were deeply focused on the issue of corruption. And Xi Jinping had launched a massive anti-corruption campaign. And it struck me that understanding China's ability to control corruption would be a great way, a great lens into understanding China's future and its ability to control that future. And so I began looking at Xi Jinping's anti-corruption campaign. And then as we're trained to do in political science, I began to zoom out and think, what is this an example of? What is this a case of more generally? And so I thought, well, if we put this in a general context, this is a case of an authoritarian government trying to reform itself and trying to curb corruption. Well, are there other such cases? So I began to look around, I began to read the theoretical literature and uh, what I read and what I understood seemed to be very much at odds with what I was reading in the case of China because people studying the case of China, not just me, but other scholars seem to think that Xi Jinping's anti-corruption campaign was quite serious and was a, a real serious effort to curb corruption. Whereas the general literature about authoritarianism seemed to suggest that autocrats love corruption uh, they don't um, they don't want to curb corruption. they see corruption as beneficial because they can use it to get rich and they can they can trade illicit spoils and and goods for political support. And so this kind of dissonance between what I was seeing and what uh, was supposed to be the case got me motivated to write this um, this large study not just on Xi Jinping's anti-corruption campaign but on authoritarianism and corruption more generally. So that's kind of how one thing led to another, and I I came to this topic.
0: Thank you for sharing uh, some of the background. You're quite generous uh, in the acknowledgments that opened the book. Uh, Can you share a bit about the importance and, and the influence of some of the scholars with whom you collaborated with? And started put you on the spot like that. There there are many, I, I realize, uh, who you could talk about. So let me f- uh, focus you on a few scholars uh, in your Harvard experience, uh, starting with uh, Elizabeth Perry and uh, Steve Levitsky. You mentioned his course uh, in the foundations of uh, comparative politics, <laughs> uh, among other things. That's right. Um,
2: when I was a freshman at Harvard, I took Steve Levitsky's foundations of uh, comparative politics. And I was just immediately hooked. I was so fascinated by his ability to pull together in a really vivid way, different examples and different cases in different countries, and to make sense of them and to say, why is England this way and another country that way? And uh, how did countries that seem similar at one time head off in different directions? Or why do things come together? And uh, so whereas I'd come into college wanting to major in history, that got me thinking in a more political science vein and in a comparative vein. And so I was really excited by that. But that's, you know, not not just uh, something that happened when I was an undergrad. In, in graduate school, he was a fantastic advisor and he... Uh, he always pushed me to think big picture. He's not a China expert, but he has very wide- ranging expertise in many different uh, countries. And so I was able to uh, you know use him as a sounding board for different ideas about different cases, but also to understand what would make a good comparative study because he has so much experience there. And um, at a time when political science is becoming very quantitative, he is still doing very high quality, Uh, qualitative research and that was an inspiration uh, to me as well to see that I could do a case study and uh, I could do things this way and it would still work out for me so I appreciate that on him and on his end Elizabeth Perry is my main advisor and uh, was really just such a pleasure to work with at every step she has incredible unparalleled knowledge of the Chinese state and Chinese society and how they interact And uh, in study after study, she's shown uh, her cutting edge thinking about China and where it stands in the world. She definitely helped me shape the project from its initial loose thoughts that I had into a cohesive plan for moving forward, Uh, looking at Xi Jinping's anti-corruption campaign, but then putting it in historical context. She has a historical depth that many political scientists don't have. And so that motivated me to think about prior cases within China, prior anti-corruption campaigns and um, how I could compare those to Xi Jinping's campaign and get some insight on it, actually. And also use Xi's campaign to look back and see how things have evolved with China's sort of uh, off and on struggle against corruption throughout the Communist Party's long rule in China. So that was tremendously helpful. And she continues to be really uh, supportive of my work.
0: Thanks for, for sharing that. Your postgraduate tour of duty as a as a postdoc fellow started at uh, Stanford University's uh, Center on Democracy Development and the Rule of Law, uh, where Francis Fukuyama and Larry Diamond are situated. From there, you moved on to Penn's Center for the Study of Contemporary China. It too is a, a place full of scholars uh, engaging with your interests in Comparative politics, like uh, Jacques Delisle and and Nathan uh, among others. Mm. Can can you share a bit about your postdoc days and and the interesting people you were so fortunate to interact with? Sure, I was really
2: excited when I was finishing up at Harvard to be accepted as a postdoc fellow at uh, Stanford Center there, at the Center for Democ- on Democracy Development and the Rule of Law. I was especially excited because it is so comparative it's not just a china focused place it's a place where you can bring in research on all sorts of countries and there are great scholars doing research on africa and on the middle east and 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 they're thinking big okay this is not just a narrow uh place where there's deep emphasis on getting causal identification strategies right in micro level studies this is big picture big thinking and, and big implications, too, uh, people who care about the impact of their research and what that's going to lead to in the real world. And so I thought that was very exciting. Frank Fukuyama is, is a great mentor and uh, very supportive. And he immediately grasped the, the key value of my dissertation at that point, just a dissertation, and saw that it could really change, hopefully, how people think about authoritarian politics. And so he was very encouraging from that moment. Onward. And and Larry Diamond as well has been uh, really great for uh, helping me see that I shouldn't uh, let authoritarians get away with anything. So, Larry Diamond is, of course, a huge supporter of democracy. And um, that comes through every time you talk to him. The man eats democracy for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And so he poses uh, tough questions. He knows a lot of cases, he knows a lot about the world. And he he knows that autocrats often just pretend to do things well. Like, they they pretend they're controlling corruption. They pretend that they're tough men who are good for their country, but um, often they're full of crap. And so he uh, he pushed me to make my arguments clearer and stronger, and uh, uh, that was really really great. Uh, not not just that. I mean, I also uh, learned a lot just by watching scholars like Fukuyama and Larry Diamond. So it was really valuable. I was really happy after that to go to UPenn. Uh, well, one last th- one last thing I'll say about Stanford is that I really appreciate them hosting my book talk and being able to bring together all these scholars to discuss my dissertation in progress as I turn it into a book. So I, I really appreciate that. But I was also really happy to go to UPenn because that was kind of a, a change that I needed at the time. It was. Uh, focused in on China as a center. It's a center for the study of contemporary China. And so that helped me to develop lots of projects that came out of the dissertation that were more China-focused, that were just China-focused. And I was able to uh, write a lot of pieces that drew on the the knowledge that's there about um, how, how China is changing today, about how uh, Xi Jinping's anti-corruption campaign has bigger implications for China than just corruption the other things that it means to the country and the way that Xi Jinping has taken China in a different direction than past leaders. I learned a lot of that. And I think that's reflected in the most recent research that I've been doing. And I'm still there. Jacques Delisle is a fantastic head of the uh, the center there and, uh, and a really great boss to have, very supportive. Um, and so uh, I was really happy to be there. And, and I'm still there. I'm still there uh, for the next uh, few months while I figure out where I'm going next on this academic journey.
0: Nice. As a kind of segue into your book, I I wonder uh, if you would say a few words uh, about your role model, Thomas Crothers. Listeners who have been C-SPAN viewers over the years may have seen your dad talking about democracy and foreign policy, as well as U.S. regional interests in the Middle East you have a reference in your book to his uh, 2002 paper, uh, The End of the Transition Paradigm, in which he so respectfully and deftly dismantled the prevailing analytic model of democratic transition in the Journal of Democracy. It's inspiring um, to see a a democracy scholar's son, born in 1989, of course, uh, in turn, referencing some of his father's Uh, influential work. Are you comfortable sharing the importance and presumably pressures of following a similar path with your father, who, as you wrote, has been my first and best line of defense against sloppy thinking? (laughs) You know, I I am happy to share, Keith. I had no idea, though,
2: that um, people read acknowledgements so carefully. So I have to to think about the things I write more in future. but, um, But that's absolutely true. I mean, Thomas Carruthers is not only a great scholar whose work I've cited a lot, but he also, also happens to be my father. And uh, I've always looked up to him. When I was a little kid, I would sit next to my dad reading his newspaper, and I would pretend to read the newspaper too, even though I couldn't read it, because I thought that's what we were supposed to do. As I grew up with the interest in politics very much uh, motivated by or informed by my dad's interest in politics, You know, I began to think internationally and I began to think about society and how it works. And my dad is, of course, a specialist on democracy, but uh, he sort of uh, pushed me to be interested in China and suggested that China was a really important country to understand in the future. That was way back in high school. And it proved 100 percent true. As soon as I started studying China, started studying Chinese, I was fascinated. I was hooked. And so I started thinking naturally about understanding authoritarianism, authoritarian regimes in a similarly comparative way to the way in which my father has expertise in democracy and in democratic systems uh, in different countries. So that certainly is part of how I got to where I am today. It's uh, definitely also a huge plus to be able to talk over anything I'm writing with him and to be able to ask for his opinions or guidance on different ideas uh, as another sort of mentor figure alongside my advisors at Harvard and uh, the other great scholars I've met along the way. And so, uh, yeah, when you pull those things together, he's uh, more than just a typical dad and he's he's more than just a mentor. Uh, he's, he's really my, my role model.
0: Thanks for sharing, Chris. Uh, many listeners may be more than a little familiar with the pressure of trying to live up to others' expectations. Uh, the pressures, that's right. I didn't answer your question about the
2: pressures, but really, I I don't feel that 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 having a father who's uh, a leading expert in democracy adds too much pressure. I think that he taught my sister and I to to put pressure on ourselves and to be the best that we can be. And he never expected or wanted us to be exactly like him, and so uh, that's that's not something I I spend too much time worrying about. Although although I if I'd gone to law school like he went to, as he did, I may have felt pressured to be on the Harvard Law Review as he was. But you know, I took a different path. I I took I I, I took a more academic path than him in a way. You know, my father doesn't have a PhD. I I went once with him to meet an official he was meeting with at the UN, and the official said, oh, Dr. Carruthers, hello. And he said, Dr. Carruthers, no, no, please, Dr. Carruthers is my son, Uh, because because, uh, it's
0: true, he's not a doctor. So, no. so
2: we're you know, heading yeah. off in different directions too yeah yeah
0: good good yeah no and in fact I was going to say that living up to uh other uh, others expectations m- much of that can be self-imposed uh, but admittedly uh motivating in the end so the main title of your book uh is corruption control in authoritarian regimes so as a kind of a place to start how, how do you define corruption and and what is it about Its consequences that people in any country should be concerned about. Uh, For that matter, uh, what's the mainstream view on the authoritarian angle uh, you are pursuing uh, relative uh, to what your own research shows? Great. Yes. um, I think that's a good place to start. You know,
2: corruption is conventionally defined as the misuse or abuse of public office for private gain. And uh, that's a Definition, which is true, but one that raises further questions about how we define those things. You know, I, in in my book, I follow Joseph Nye's influential uh, elaboration of that definition, where he he tries to specify further that uh, public office is an entrusted position of public authority, and uh, an abuse of power is uh, something which perverts the functioning of the government as defined by set rules and general practices and the private interest can be not only for oneself, but also for one's family or for one's political group or for a different clique or or, or a faction. And so taking this overarching general definition and making it more specific is probably the best way to go. But that doesn't, you know, just, just laying out a definition like that doesn't necessarily help people understand what we're talking about. And mostly what I'm talking about are the kinds of corruption that are acknowledged as corruption everywhere. We're talking bribery, embezzlement, uh, extortion, vote buying, and other forms of abuse that are are not debated are not. uh, Okay. In some countries they're generally things acknowledged everywhere in in all cultures to be, to be wrong. Uh, And so that's, that's how I sort of define corruption there. Of course, there, there are many debated cases. Is this really corruption? Is that really corruption? But for such a big macro level study, you know, I can't get into those debates too much. What are the consequences of corruption? Well, corruption is well known to have a host of negative consequences. When it becomes widespread, corruption undermines how a government functions. And uh, it can undermine everything from military preparedness to investment projects to infrastructure and that has consequences not just for how the government works, but also for the economy. Right? Corruption is well known to dramatically harm economies. Uh, it undermines economic growth. It causes inequality. It causes distortions and it scares away foreign investment. So even though some scholars have recently argued that corruption in some ways can be beneficial to an economy, overall, the consensus remains that in the long run, corruption is almost always detrimental to a national economy. So there's political problems and then there's economic problems and uh I should also raise a third thing which is that people hate corruption. <laughs> and so that brings all sorts of consequences, right? So even if corruption, you know, is, isn't that economically dangerous, if the people rise up in anger against it, that can bring all sorts of political turmoil. And the the people's anger at one case of high-profile corruption can bring down a whole government, and we've seen that historically. And these negatives are true, and they these consequences of corruption occur not just in democracies, but also in authoritarian regimes. Authoritarian regimes are not accountable to their people in the same way that democracies are, but nor are they immune to the, the detrimental effects of corruption on how the state functions and on the economy and on public opinion. <laughs> and then you're that kind of leads me to your the third part of your question, which was about conventional wisdom on corruption in authoritarian regimes. As I see it, there's a sort of two part conventional wisdom. and the first is that many scholars and observers believe that for authoritarian regimes, corruption is great. The benefits of corruption are going to far outweigh the costs. so the dictator should engage in corruption. and um the government should enjoy not being accountable to the people because it can enrich itself and also trade illicit spoils in return for loyalty that kind of that kind of illicit exchange is at the heart of many authoritarian systems like if we look at russia today under putin i mean he 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 rules very much by handing out goodies and favors to a small in group of of other elites and they in turn support him so that's one conventional wisdom is that you know corruption's good and any anti-corruption you see is probably fake It's probably just an autocrat uh, trying to purge his or her rivals and then pretending that they're corrupt in order to do that. And we we do see many cases of that. So then the second part of the conventional wisdom is that, well, if you do want to curb corruption, uh, scholars on corruption will tell you that the key thing you need is strong democratic institutions, right? You want checks and balances. You want an independent judiciary. You want constraints on the executive and on power because that's how you... It disincentivize wrongdoing. And so that also makes it really unlikely that an authoritarian regime would be able to curb corruption because autocrats, of course, reject these constraints on power. So the conventional wisdom is that this really shouldn't happen very much, that Xi Jinping's campaign should be kind of fake and superficial, and it shouldn't help China to substantially curb corruption. And so that that's that's the conventional wisdom as I saw it going into this.
0: Can, can you share some examples of authoritarian anti-corruption campaigns? And, and where did you focus your efforts in the book? Did, did you find that anti-corruption efforts by authoritarian regimes are generally successful or, or not so much? And, and what are the common features uh, you found uh, based on your study? A great question. Yes, I think corruption control
2: in authoritarian regimes is more common and more often successful than is widely understood. So I looked at the period after World War II and tried to assess authoritarian anti-corruption, especially in in Asian cases, but but in general globally, from then to now. And I found maybe 10 cases where we can clearly say that anti-corruption was successful and had major consequences for an authoritarian regime strengthening and improving it. I would argue that Xi Jinping's anti-corruption campaign has been successful. Uh, I think that despite some limitations and uh, natural caveats, it has substantially changed the nature of corruption in China, and it has reduced the prevalence or incidence of corruption throughout the state. So, so that's that's a really big contemporary case that I would argue for. I think historically, anti-corruption has often been part of uh, governments trying to develop and trying to achieve a national self-strengthening, uh, and, and autocrats have sometimes done that. So many people think of the case of Lee Kuan Yew in Singapore, and I would agree that Lee Kuan Yew did, uh, after coming to power, curb corruption in the 1960s in Singapore, and uh, did so in a very autocratic way. In fact, uh, Lee Kuan Yew's Singapore is much more authoritarian than today's Singapore, which has mellowed out and become more competitive. A case that almost no one is talking about is uh, that of of Taiwan. Because uh, when Chiang Kai-shek was defeated in the Chinese Civil War and fled to Taiwan, one of the main reasons he identified for his loss of China was that his regime had become so corrupt. And he, he knew that, he saw that. And in Taiwan, he led a KMT reconstruction, a reconstruction of the, the Nationalist Party that involved curbing a lot of the corrupt practices that had previously been so detrimental. And I think that really laid the foundation for rejuvenation and for the strengthening of that regime and in some ways for the the prosperous Taiwan we see today, even though democratization was, you know, tremendously important in that, there was already, A lot of development happening in the authoritarian period. So these are all East Asian cases I've been highlighting, but this is not just an East Asian phenomenon. I think uh, when we look at Rwanda, we can see another example of uh, an authoritarian state that is is very uh, tightly controlled, but also has enacted significant anti-corruption measures that make it uh, one of the uh, most effective and efficient states in in, uh, Africa. Uh, and that's under President Paul Kagame since uh, 1999. There are other cases. I mean, uh, Fidel Castro's Cuba, um, Qatar. There are there are cases outside of East Asia that are also plausible. But general lessons or uh, commonalities we can take away from these cases. Well, I would say that many of these cases are countries that had a very strong leader who had sufficient state capacity at his disposal and the motivation to curb corruption. So when, when there's a strong leader who can push forward with a sort of a campaign and can actually get the state to enforce that campaign, then corruption tends to be curbed. Um, but maybe I should break that down into a couple pieces. So l- let's first ask, what's the motivation? So why are some authoritarian regimes motivated to curb corruption? Uh, we might think that authoritarian regimes shouldn't be because they don't have the public pushing them to be. Uh, The public can't force autocrats to curb corruption. But what I see in many cases is that autocrats recognize the negatives I raised earlier that corruption bring. And so they decide to curb corruption to strengthen the state because they see that strengthening the state is actually critical to their regime's survival. And that could be because uh, there's a foreign threat, and so they need to self-strengthen, or it could be because there's a major domestic challenge that needs to be overcome through a stronger state. And so in cases like that, uh, and that gets to a lot of the developmental states that were authoritarian in the the 60s and 70s, um, when there's a case like that, autocrats tend to be motivated to curb corruption, to clean house, even though they're not under public pressure to, or the public pressure doesn't affect them. So that's where the motivation often comes from. But that doesn't mean that autocrats will succeed. That's where the autocratic strength comes in. Mm -hmm. So because autocrats who have to cooperate with lots of other elites often have to make corrupt deals with those elites, and then they won't be able to uh, pressure elites to give up their corrupt lifestyles. But some autocrats rise above others and uh, become more powerful and are therefore able to impose corruption control on others. And I see that happening in a lot of cases, which is interesting because we would think that in, in democracies, corruption control is all about checking power and it's all about putting constraints on power. But in authoritarian regimes, you actually need unconstrained power. (laughs) You need uh, an autocrat who is free to impose corruption control. So it turns out that anti-corruption in authoritarian regimes operates by a very different political logic than uh, anti-corruption in democracies. And that may be part of why people haven't identified it as such yet. They say, oh, but this guy's a corrupt uh, dictator. How could he be leading anti-corruption effort? Well, it's because those dictatorial powers may actually be helpful. Um, may actually be helpful to allowing them to have the strength to impose corruption control. So that's a very long answer, but I think that overall there's, there's more anti-corruption in authoritarian regimes than people think. And it has to do with uh, autocrats motivations to strengthen the state and their ability to impose corruption control because of their powers as individuals uh, over authoritarian states. So it's a kind of top-down corruption control as opposed to uh, The bottom-up corruption control that you would get in a democracy.
0: Well, nice. Thanks uh, for for sharing all that. And a bit along the lines of uh, like father, like son, in the sense that you are challenging the prevailing uh, analytical model, challenging or at least uh, turning over the uh, the received wisdom of late, um, as you, as you point out, the the book's findings, uh, your book's findings are are based on uh, your study and comparison of the anti-corruption campaigns um, in China, South Korea, and Taiwan, um, primarily, as well as a broader set of authoritarian regimes, as, as, as you just brought up and mentioned. Why these particular cases for your research? And can you talk a bit about the challenges of your fieldwork and uh, whether you could uh, replicate it today? Oh, that's a tough question.
2: Uh, yes, uh, I did decide to focus on China, South Korea, and Taiwan, because these states had a lot of similarities when looked at in a historical perspective over multiple decades. These authoritarian countries, of course, Taiwan and South Korea later democratized, had a lot of similarities that helped in a political science methodological framework to isolate certain factors that may explain the variation in uh, anti-corruption success or failure. So, uh, for example, some people argue that... um, Confucian culture or East Asian culture has something unique about it that may impact corruption. But these states are all uh, Confucian-influenced states with uh, Chinese influence and uh, general East Asian culture, and we still see a lot of variation. So, so that's how I sort of use different states to uh, control for things in a, in a qualitative and yet still empirical way. So it was it was useful to focus on these states. And it was useful to also to have uh, states that had a lot of variation over time. So uh, we know that China has had a lot of different anti-corruption efforts over the decades, and some have been more successful than others under the Chinese Communist Party. And so that is also helpful to do uh, a comparisons on. And, and that's also true of Taiwan and South Korea. It's also interesting to compare these states because China under the Communist Party is, of course, a communist authoritarian regime whereas Taiwan under Chiang Kai-shek and his son was an anti-communist authoritarian regime. And in South Korea, we have a military authoritarian regime. And so there are those kinds of differences that cut across the different cleavages within the broad category of authoritarianism. And so that was also helpful. Uh, Some people ask why I don't include other states like uh, Hong Kong or North Korea is right there. Um, But I think that you know, other, other states that I tried to include and look at in the study uh, weren't as useful as main cases. Hong Kong is a very unusual case because people will raise it to point to effective anti-corruption. And it's true that Hong Kong did manage to curb corruption in the 1970s in a, in a really significant way. But Hong Kong was never an independent country. And so it was curbing anti-corruption under British rule which really changes the dynamics there. It really makes it hard to compare with independent states and with an autocrat who has different kinds of incentives, uh, political and governance-wise. And so, so so I decided not to include Hong Kong. And then North Korea is very difficult to study because uh, it's very closed and, and we can't really have the same standards of evidence when we look at North Korea. Although I did later write a separate article about North Korea where I try my best to look at you know what's going on there with corruption and anti-corruption. So, so that's why I focused on China, South Korea, and, and Taiwan to make a, a short question long.
0: With regard to the People's Republic of China, what are your main arguments in the book, and um, how did how did you describe the motivations of Xi's signature anti-corruption campaign? My main arguments are: uh, first, that Xi's
2: campaign has been successful which is an argument against some people who write about China and and other uh, scholars of corruption and of authoritarianism who would doubt this kind of outcome. But then my second argument is more controversial. It's that Xi has succeeded through a decidedly authoritarian approach. And so I raised this idea of an authoritarian approach to corruption control that's very different to a democratic approach because it's so top-down, because it's so controlling. And because instead of drawing on the strength of the people to check power, it relies on the motivation of of an autocrat to impose control from above. And so that's kind of confusing to some people, because if we assume that corruption control goes with good governance and with democracy, then it's confusing that China has been moving in a more autocratic direction under Xi Jinping and that at the same time it may be getting a better handle on corruption. And so that might have some worrying implications for where China's headed and, and forward looking dimension. But you know I also do significant work on the historical cases of of anti-corruption in China. So I look at the um the three antis five antis campaign in the early Mao era and I show how while it was a short campaign in the 1950s after the communist party took power it really was uh, successful at reshaping china and at helping the communist party to establish itself and to change from being a guerrilla fighting force to a ruling party that builds bureaucracy that manages the economics and the politics of china's complex urban centers and that controls the corruption in those urban centers that have become totally rampant under the nationalist party rule And so that is like a big turning point that I see in the early 1950s. And then I also give various other arguments about uh, different anti-corruption over over different decades later on.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
0: Yeah, no, it's an interesting part of the book, as is your uh, case study of uh, South Korea. You've got some um, some good stuff uh, going on there. You, you make a point regarding uh, the Worldwide Corruption Perceptions Index uh, in terms mm-hmm. of the success or, or the success of the anti-corruption campaign. Hey, why do you feel um, such a measure is not really appropriate for your study, and and what do you feel are, are more appropriate questions to frame uh, a more valid evaluation? Mm, yes, the the study of
2: corruption has been dominated for many years by anti-corruption indices. They're just so darn convenient because Transparency International's uh, Corruption Perceptions Index uh, begins in the mid 1990s and it covers every country in the world. Then it gives you this helpful number. It says, how corrupt is uh, Sierra Leone? A 5.6. How corrupt is it this year? A 7.5, no problem. And so it's a, a, it's very useful for a, a big quantitative study. But um, you know, I think there are, there are real problems with using uh, perceptions as a proxy for real corruption. And there are also things about my study in particular that make the corruption perceptions index not very useful. So if I start with the general issues, uh, and these are not just uh, uh, my ideas, I think a lot of scholars take issue with these corruption perception indices. People have shown that There is a great deal of bias in who is interviewed and who is surveyed to sort of pull together these measures, and that that really affects how a country is seen. So, if mostly Western businessmen and women are interviewed about the corruption in a developing country, then really what that index is capturing is how corruption in a country is affecting a certain group of foreign investors. Or, or people doing business in the country. And, and it, so it, it's not necessarily capturing how corruption may operate in that country domestically, which may be much more important to say the people living in that country. Uh, people have also noted that uh, countries know that the corruption perception index is ranking them and they care about it. And so they're they're doing different things to game the system and to move their, their own country up and down the, uh, the scale or just up the scale, hopefully. And so I think that uh, even some people who were initially involved in creating the Corruption Perception Index have raised doubts about its, you know, its its real usefulness. Uh, For for my study, because I'm focused on authoritarian regimes, I think it's even less useful to use an index that uh, relies on outside perceptions because authoritarian regimes are opaque. Authoritarian regimes are purposefully hiding what's going on in many cases. And that's on top of the difficulty of already trying to figure out what is going on with corruption in general, because corruption is a hidden phenomenon. If we take the case of, uh, say, Tunisia, uh, Tunisia was rated as uh, for many years as one of the Middle East's least corrupt authoritarian regimes. But then when the Tunisian, uh, when the Arab Spring came and the Tunisian regime fell, suddenly perceptions of Tunisia improved to get less corrupt, but this was happening just as uh, news was coming out that the president had been hiding corruption throughout his whole term in office. So a lot of complex things are happening, and it's not clear that the Corruption Perception Index was capturing those. As countries democratize, of course, uh, Westerners start to see them better in a better light. But if corruption is being revealed, then maybe the index should be adjusted in the past. But of course, indices are never, they never go back and change the past markings of them because that would admit that, you know, things we learn now change our view of the past. And so so there are a lot of sort of complexities that make us start to raise questions and start to have doubts about the validity of these indices. I was surprised when deep into my project, I, I decided to take a look at the Corruption Perception Index and what it had to say about Xi Jinping's campaign. And I saw that it had nothing to say about Xi Jinping's campaign that uh, apparently corruption in China hasn't changed at all over the last decade of Xi Jinping waging this giant complex campaign. And that's just very, very hard to believe uh, that there would be no effect. Uh, You know, whatever you think of the campaign, it clearly has stirred things up a lot. Probably what's happening is a a mix of different things. On the one hand, Xi Jinping's campaign may be doing something positive to curb corruption, but uh, outside observers may be seeing that he's becoming more autocratic and so may conflate his authoritarianism with corruption. Uh, It's also possible that Xi's campaign has had different effects on China's uh, international trade and and the ability of foreign investors to, to invest in China and the domestic situation. So that's also worth keeping in mind. China is a huge country in and of itself, and how it trades with the world is governed by politics, not just economics. And so it may be very different than what's going on within China. So for a host of reasons, I felt that it really made more sense in in my study to to try to assess corruption, which is always difficult to assess, not by using perceptions as a proxy, but by looking at what an authoritarian regime actually did. And obviously, you can't do that on a huge scale when you look at 100 countries. You have to have a smaller set of cases. And I do have a smaller set of cases. So what I really did was dug in to try to look at uh, what the anti-corruption efforts were, who they arrested, who they prosecuted, how they enforced anti-corruption, but then also what institutions they built, uh, how they disincentivized future corruption and how they rearranged the state uh, to curb corrupt practices that had previously existed. So I look at that enforcement and I look at that rulemaking and institution building and then I look at it over time to see whether it remained in place and whether um, you know, th- this is a campaign that has real depth because many, many anti-corruption efforts by autocrats are just what they appear. They're very superficial. They're just about knocking a few heads together, purging a few rivals. But we need to separate the weed from the chaff. And we need to see that in a sub- significant subset of authoritarian regimes, there's much more serious anti-corruption that's happening. And so if we recognize
0: that, then we can see this is going to have a lot of implications for China and
2: for other countries that do do it right.
0: It's clear that some of the uh, initial reactions to uh, different uh, systems of of measuring this are are pretty much values driven in a way. I suppose that, you know, there's a premised issue there. But can you talk uh, a bit about uh, your methodology chapter, Um, for instance, how you developed and implemented your scoring system? Um, Thinking here about the rulemaking and enforcement and in particular. Yes. Assessing corruption is
2: always a big challenge because corruption is hidden, but I decided that by looking at uh, past studies of corruption control, I could pull together a holistic assessment criteria. And so by looking at past studies that have identified different aspects of corruption control, uh, such as oh the, the importance of anti-corruption agencies or the importance of anti-corruption laws, then I could create a sort of holistic assessment strategy that uh, was still viable given the evidence that we do have about authoritarian politics and what happens in an authoritarian country. And that I would be able to apply across different cases, including cases as different as China in the 1950s and China today. Uh, mm-hmm. So how can we get uh, an assessment strategy that's both flexible, but also rigorous? And that, that's, that's a real challenge that I, I had in designing this. So pulling together uh, what I saw from past literature and from what I was reading in the cases, I decided that what really constitutes an anti-corruption effort is enforcement and rulemaking or institution building. And so within each of those categories, I tried to break down uh, the the overarching uh, sort of category into different key features of anti-corruption. So within enforcement, uh, you know, we think of, investigations and prosecutions against corruption. But I, I saw that it's important to look at the horizontal scope of those uh, investigations and prosecutions. So um, how many people across how many different regions, or how many provinces, uh, sort of what, what level of enforcement is going on across the board. And then it's also important to look vertically. So are there high level officials being arrested? Or is this just a low-level campaign? Or is it just a high-level campaign? Are there just a few rivals of the autocrat being purged? And that also tells us it's not very serious. So look horizontally, look vertically, and then also look at persistence. So in some cases, an autocrat will arrest uh, suspects of corruption, but then somehow they'll just let them go. After talking a little bit, the, those people will just be let out. We saw this with um, uh, Mohammed bin Salman's anti-corruption Uh, arrests in in Saudi Arabia a few years ago that were very political, very obviously driven by narrow political interests. And sure enough, after arresting these elites supposedly on corruption charges, most of them were just let go. Um, Now, Xi Jinping's campaign has a different dynamic. There, the conviction rate is very, very high. It's uh, close to 99%, over 99% for most cases. So this is not a case of um, uh, backtracking. So, so looking at the horizontal scope and the vertical reach and the persistence helped me pull together a holistic view of enforcement that could still be compared to enforcement in a very different situation. So that, that's, that's something you can look at and assess holistically China in, in China in 2022 or in China in 1952. In terms of uh, rulemaking or institution building, I looked at... Uh, different studies of uh, anti-corruption, including in democracies. And what I pulled together was a sort of multi-part uh, index there as well that looked at different features, including whether the campaign against corruption involved strengthening the anti-corruption apparatus. So whether there more personnel, more enforcement, and then uh, whether it strengthened the direct anti-corruption laws or rules of the country, whether those remained in force, and then whether it, uh, it was able to change practices by the government or the, the ruling uh, party that were causing corruption in the past. So, so sort of bureaucratic administrative changes. And then I also highlighted that, you know, often elites live in their own worlds and sort of high ranking officials have different rules that govern them. And so I I posited that a really successful anti-corruption effort would change the rules, not just for ordinary officials and bureaucrats and people working in the government, but also for elites. And so so looking at these different factors, I pulled together this kind of holistic way of assessing anti-corruption effort that I applied to different cases throughout my study, finding some autocrats to be successful and others to be unsuccessful at, at curbing corruption. And then looking at the political and economic consequences of that, which were often quite
0: large. Um, Nice. And I I think you lay that out nicely uh, in in chapter two, where you talk about the theory first, and then you work your way into uh, the methodology there. Uh, You've probably already touched a a bit uh, on this already, but can, can you explain a little more about some of the successful methods at work in China's authoritarian approach? Yes, I did
2: posit that authoritarian corruption control uses different methods. It uses uh, top-down and centralized methods that are at odds with what we typically think of as democratic best practices which involve constraining power and uh, checking uh, discretion. I think that if we take Xi Jinping's campaign as an example, there are really three parts of a sort of three, three parts of a successful method for curbing for corruption in an authoritarian way. And the first that I see across many cases is power centralization. So in the case of Xi Jinping's anti-corruption campaign, power was centralized in his hands. So the campaign is all about his instructions and his vision for curbing corruption and is, is prosecuted. The campaign is prosecuted by institutions that are directly loyal to him. And so that's that's directly opposite of the kinds of checks and balances we might expect to see that would be good for curbing corruption. So the, the top-down control that I see comes nat- flows naturally from the centralization of power. It's the exertion of power downward and the non-acceptance of checks from below. So that means not letting the public have their say about anti-corruption. Uh, we see that throughout Xi's campaign. Uh, and it means not letting local officials get in the way of anti-corruption. A big problem of anti-corruption is that local officials will hide their own corruption or they'll hide the corruption of their subordinates so they don't look bad. But the way Xi's campaign is organized, the institutions that he's empowered, such as inspection teams and uh, discipline inspection teams, they have the power to sort of penetrate into local areas and investigate corruption without the approval of local party bosses. And that's very much on purpose because that prevents bureaucratic foot dragging and it prevents uh, local protectionism. The very negative side of this is that it also prevents the public from speaking up and saying that they want anti-corruption to be done in a particular way. And there certainly are those voices in China. It's just that the Xi administration doesn't want to hear them or it only wants to hear them in very narrow ways. It doesn't want anyone to take control of the campaign except itself. So the campaign is centralized and top-down in that way. The the third feature that I see uh, in Xi's campaign and and also in in many others prosecuted successfully by autocrats is the use of censorship and propaganda. And those sound like uh, things that happen all the time in autocracies, but they really are important to anti-corruption campaigns because they help to shape the narrative. They shape the narrative about the campaign to strengthen it, to make it seem inevitable, right? There's been in China a a real concerted effort to in state media to portray Xi's campaign as, as powerful, as righteous, as inevitable. So, So, if you're an official, uh, trying to engage in, in corruption or taking bribes, you should be very scared because you will never get away with it. That's the message. And, uh, that message is, is done through the censoring of, of uh, some voices and the promotion of others. And it's also done through the production of anti-corruption television, through some popular shows like In the Name of the People, uh, that sort of dramatized the anti-corruption campaign and showed that it's working. Uh, so, so there's been a whole, a whole society... Uh, level effort by the the state and its uh, its propaganda to, to push this campaign and to make sure it's successful. So so with this kind of uh, overall top down approach, the Xi administration has been successful in curbing corruption. But I wanna I wanna just caveat this and say that this in no way is an argument by me that authoritarian regimes do things better. Okay, this is not that argument. Okay, I I know that. Most autocrats are not steady-handed reformers. And and even those that are, they are subverting the will of their people and doing things their way uh, in order to achieve their goals, even if those goals are sometimes something positive like curbing corruption. Um, Nor do I think this anti-corruption technique is better than how democracies curb corruption. I think that in the really long run, the richest, most effective anti-corruption strategy is still empowering people to to combat corruption, uh, and so this is what I'm saying is that authoritarian regimes have this capability to do this, to do this much, and we shouldn't assume that they're all weak and that they're going to fall apart because they're so corrupt. But they they can identify corruption as a problem and they can not fight it, and so we need to recognize that because it's an important phenomenon.
0: Sure, you know the the idea that that there is no deliberative element really is a weak uh, link in the in the whole edifice there. How Maoist do you do you feel the any corruption campaign uh, really is, um, and and any broader implications that that may have?
2: Oh, that's that's a good question and one that many people are asking about Xi Jinping because I think ever since Xi Jinping took power, he has been uh, intimating that he is a Mao supporter or that he believes the party has strayed too far from Mao. Uh, and and many things he said and things he's done uh, remind people of, of Mao, and so naturally we have to ask if his campaign is also a Maoist campaign. I looked into that, and because I look at anti-corruption campaigns in the Mao era, I'm able to, to assess that. I would say that overall Xi Jinping's campaign has Maoist features, but like with other parts of his governance, he really changes them and adapts them to a very different national situation today. Um, Let me give you three examples of things that the Xi administration has changed. So one, in the Mao era, Mao was a really strong believer in the people rising up and in mass mobilization that uh, would involve people, ordinary people, uh, criticizing local officials and taking over the, the powers of local officials to make radical change. Xi Jinping does not believe in that. Xi Jinping may talk the red talk, but he does not, not walk the red walk. Um, Xi's campaign is very controlled, is very top-down, and he does not want the kind of chaos that occurred during the Cultural Revolution. So when people say, oh, this is a second Cultural Revolution, I, I totally disagree. This, this is a very controlled campaign uh, in a lot of ways. So that that's one thing. A second thing is that, that Mao hated experts, that Mao did not believe in the power of expertise. He believed that ideological uh, virtue and zeal could overcome expertise and was better for the country. But Xi Jinping's campaign doesn't show that at all. When the Xi administration sends inspection teams to inspect some city uh, to see if there's corruption going on, they send experts. They send people who have decades of experience um, in investigative work, and who have relevant uh, expertise in financial auditing and in other technical skills that are important and, 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 frankly, critical to understanding the complexities of what's going on in China today. China has become a lot more complicated, uh, not just politically, rich, uh, not just economically richer, but also politically more complicated and technically more complicated than it, it was in the past, and so. I can't see how a Mao-style campaign would work in that sense. And then the third thing, and this has struck a lot of people, is that Xi's campaign doesn't have an end point, right? Mm -hmm. Mao-era campaigns, they were like a storm. They would come through and they would blow things up and shake things up, but then they would end and things would go back to the way they had been or maybe there'd be some change, but things would return to a sense of normalcy. But Xi Jinping's campaign is different. So it's already lasted much longer than many people thought possible. And it seems that what Xi has been saying is correct, that he's trying to establish a sense of normalcy, a new normal, Xin Xinjiang Tai, of – and what is the new normal? It's, it's of high-pressure uh, anti-corruption, uh, not in a campaign way, but in a constant sort of enforcement mechanism. So, so so maybe Xi Jinping's campaign, which I've been referring to as a campaign, uh, started out as a campaign, but ultimately will end up as a new normal and as just part of how China functions for, for many years to come, especially if Xi Jinping remains in power.
0: Um, your Your book is by no means all about China. And as your subtitle makes clear, and you've talked about this um, already. Um, the subtitle, though, uh, Lessons from East Asia. Can you give listeners a, a, a little more thumbnail sketch, I guess, of of your nine main cases and and their importance to your study? Because it is pretty uh, broad. I mean, you've got a lot going on uh, in your book. Thank you. Yes. At, at different
2: points in me writing this book, a very, very smart, well-meaning scholars took me aside and said, Chris, this is too ambitious. It's you're trying to do too much with too many countries and trying to understand too many different things. And and I appreciate that, but I respectfully had to disagree and say, no, I want to do it big. Yeah. So that's, that's what I, that's what I did, I think. So yes, um, to sketch the nine cases, these are anti-corruption efforts, both successful and unsuccessful level that were major and took place in China, South Korea, and Taiwan. And I I have these nine cases because after having selected China, South Korea, and Taiwan for the study, these are all the cases that meet my specific criteria for what is an anti-corruption campaign in these authoritarian regimes. So that's how I sort of selected them. So the cases are in China, uh, the three antis, five antis campaign in the 1950s, the four cleans campaign in the 1960s, the post 1989 anti-corruption crackdown Uh, and Xi Jinping's anti-corruption campaign. Now, scholars of China listening to that list may say, wait a minute, but those aren't anti-corruption campaigns. Those campaigns had all sorts of other features and were about other things. What I would say is that uh, nothing is only about corruption, right? Even Xi Jinping's campaign, though, it's very focused on corruption, it's about a lot of different things. It's about Xi Jinping consolidating power. It's about Xi Jinping trying to change China's economy. It's about many things. But what makes these anti-corruption campaigns is that they had a large component of investigating and prosecuting officials for corruption or for economic crimes that are considered corruption. So I just wanted to to put that on the table there. Uh, So the the cases in Taiwan are uh, Chiang Kai-shek's KMT reconstruction in the 1950s, and then Chang Jingguo's uh, governmental rejuvenation in uh, sort of 1969, 1972, which is when he took power. Um, And those two are both uh, very successful uh, anti-corruption efforts that that built one on the other that uh, left Taiwan in a very positive place uh, before it transitioned to democracy economically, if not not politically. Um, In South Korea, the picture is more mixed because there isn't just one authoritarian regime there. There are really two. Um, I look at the military period in general, but that involves first the government of Park Chung-hee and then the government of Chun hwan So under Park Chung-hee, I look at two anti-corruption efforts. First, his post-coup crackdown in 1961, which he promised to do as soon as he took power, and sure enough, he tried to uh, punish some corrupt officials. But ultimately, that campaign was not very successful, and for various reasons, I argue he was forced to to scale back his anti-corruption efforts there. But I argue he was more successful in the 1970s. His general administrative reform, as it was called, the Sejong Suixin, uh, which involved curbing bureaucratic corruption. And it's interesting that, you know, Park Park Zheng He's rule can really be divided into two parts. And the second part in the 1970s was much more autocratic and dictatorial than the first half, even though they were both generally authoritarian. And that is the period that was more successful at curbing corruption. So it's not always that You know, greater democracy leads to uh, better corruption control.
0: And interesting parts that you talk about there with uh, uh, the constitutional changes. The Yushin Constitution in 1972
2: marks a big turning point in the regime. It really takes South Korea from what is known as a competitive authoritarian regime uh, to what's known as a fully authoritarian regime. So it's a regime without any quasi democratic characteristics, it's really 0% democracy. This is what really was happening there. Uh, and then after Park is assassinated in 1971, uh, eventually Doo Hwan takes power. Chen Duhuan is also a military man, but he runs a very different kind of regime. And it's much, much more corrupt than, than Park's uh, developmental state. And Doo uh, Duhuan does promise a purification of the, the country, including its corruption. And he arrests a whole bunch of people, but he does very little institution building to back that up. And so there we have a case of very unsuccessful anti-corruption effort that's uh, frankly in line with the conventional wisdom that autocrats don't have the incentives or the ability to, to curb corruption. And So those are the those are the nine cases
0: there. Yeah, nice. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks so much for for giving us the rundown. Interested listeners in comparative politics and policy uh, have much to look forward to in terms of discovering. The scholarship in, in in your new book, Chris. For those listeners who might be interested in diving deeper uh, into the comparative literature of your field of study and its methodology, do you have a few foundational texts you could recommend as as points of departure? What a, what a nice
2: question for the the students among the listeners. For for any grad students who've struggled this far through through my rambles, thank you for that. Yes, I think that I. <laughs> have some recommendations to make in different areas. So in the study of authoritarianism, I found really instructive uh, Barbara Geddes's foundational work, a foundational article, What Do We Know About Democratization After 20 Years? So that's an article that came out more than 20 years ago now, but it really set the stage for all sorts of useful investigations of comparative political systems and what is democracy? What is authoritarianism? How are different authoritarian regimes different? And then, what are the consequences of that? So, for my study, it really raises the question: What are the differences then between an authoritarian regime that curbs corruption and one that doesn't? You know, what what happens? What kind of positive benefits do regimes get if they're able to curb corruption? How does that strengthen them? Uh, so that was that was a very useful text. I mean, more more recent works include the, the Politics of Authoritarian Rule by Milan Svolik and uh, a big update to Barbara Geddes' work. Uh, which she co-authored with uh, uh, it's it's Getty's right in France. That's the um that's the the power trifecta and their uh, their new book how dictatorship's work is is excellent. Uh, for scholars looking to understand more about um, uh, corruption control, I would recommend Michael Johnston's book, Corruption, Contention, and Reform, from uh, about ten years ago now, in which he really, lays out different syndromes of corruption as he calls them and and makes the case that you really need strong democracy to curb corruption so my book kind of disagrees with some of his conclusions but it was really uh really smart and useful book to think about and and it taught me a lot about corruption for scholars interested to learn more about china and china and corruption there's there are a wealth of different excellent books um one that I used a lot was uh, Cadres and Corruption by Lu Bois, which came out in 2000 or 2001, I think. And that shows that the Communist Party has always been wrestling with corruption and that it's never fully defeated this enemy, but that it, it, this struggle has defined how it has ruled and uh, will ultimately shape its legitimacy in the eyes of the people. So those are those are just some. Well, if I list one more China book, I would list Patricia Thornton's Disciplining the State, 2007 like my study, takes different anti-corruption episodes at different points in Chinese history and shows how they have these rich similarities. And that study actually goes back into the Qing dynasty, showing the continuity even beyond the Communist Party rule, uh, which is where I, my study picks up.
0: Thanks for sharing all that. You you had mentioned earlier uh, about qualitative and quantitative. How, how do you approach that these days? Uh, as you said, the uh, you know, back in the seventies, this uh, we we took kind of a uh, quantitative turn, similar to what economics had done uh, previously. Yes, I, I do
2: mostly qualitative work, and uh, that uh, that is against the grain of where things are going. I think in my cohort at Harvard of uh, twenty four students, besides the political theorists, you know, besides people studying content and Weber, I was the only one who wrote a dissertation that was fully qualitative. And uh, so, yeah, uh, that that was a uh, daring, perhaps bordering on on madness uh, in terms of, <laughs> of job prospects. But I found it very meaningful, and and my committee was very supportive because uh, Elizabeth Perry, Steve Levitsky, Jegorich Eckert, uh, they all do uh, a lot of qualitative work, and they're from the old school. I think the best uh, qualitative and quantitative work support each other. Uh, I think that qualitative work helps inform quantitative work by generating new ideas and by r- sort of revealing the richness of a particular case or a particular set of cases that can inform broader quantitative studies and by digging in more deeply to a causal process rather than validating it by bringing more evidence from uh, a thinner but much broader range of cases so i think that you know qualitative uh qualitative analysis has a lot to offer to quantitative analysis as well as of course the other way around. Uh, and so I hope that the field can continue to develop, uh, in a, in a positive direction that that is methodologically uh, agnostic or not really agnostic. It's just inclusive. It's methodologically inclusive because the sort of big, big data chauvinism, uh, is ultimately self-defeating and will simply lead to our field being uh, taken over by economics or, or even by physics and, uh, doesn't teach us everything we need to know about politics i think
0: well let me ask you you got a couple more months at at, uh upenn and then uh Mm -hmm. figure out what you're gonna do i'll have to see yeah that's right i'm uh doing a lot of interviews these days uh
2: different universities and some non-academic jobs trying to see where i might fit in to to keep doing that really interesting research i like to do about china and about asia and uh Right now, what I'm working on, having now finished the book, is a study of Chinese anti-Americanism. So I'm working with a co-author on an investigation of how Chinese media portrays the United States and what that tells us about what Chinese people are thinking and learning about the United States and also how the, the Chinese government seeks to legitimize itself through comparisons. So how does it use comparisons such as Look, the US is bad at handling COVID and we're good at handling COVID or something like that to to sort of strengthen its its rule and its its um, persuasive hold over people. So uh, I hope that project can uh, can really have some legs.
0: Wow, that, that sounds interesting. And I, I can imagine all the value overlays that you'll have to deal with there. Well, Professor Caruthers, uh, Chris, uh, thank you again for taking the time to talk with us ab- about your new book, uh, just out from Cambridge University Press, Corruption Control in Authoritarian Regimes, Lessons from East Asia. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure being here. Th- thanks again Chris hope to uh, talk to you again and and uh, look forward to your uh, to your next work okay great thank you Keith